Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. Today is September 9th, 2021, and I'm at HAND, H-A-N-D, which is a nonprofit organization center on affordable housing, and I'm with Andrea Davis, the executive director of HAND at their headquarters near, just not near, not in downtown Oblesville. So, Andrea, it's always great to talk to you. It's always great to talk to you too, Larry. You know, I've uh, I've done a number of stories on hand for my blog and a number of uh, podcasts as well. Uh, but continue, we continue to have new residents come in and out of Fishers and other parts of Hamilton County. So uh, just give us a little idea of the background, what HAND does, what, what it's all about. Sure. So we are a nonprofit of, um, developer of attainable housing, um, which is, is the new word we're using instead of affordable Um a lot of people have sort of negative connotations around the notion of quote unquote affordable housing. So we're trying to make it sound a, a little less scary. Um, we were formed um, as a as a spinoff from the Noblesville Housing Authority, which is Hamilton County's public housing agency. Um, when they saw that as as Hamilton County was growing in the late 1990s and early 2000s, the housing that was being built didn't necessarily match the incomes of people who were living here already. And um, they understood at the time that there would there was and would continue to be a need for some more attainable options for folks, you know, kind of at, at um, more kind of middle class wages. And so they started um, doing some development at that time. We started out building um, housing for seniors, low income seniors on fixed incomes. And um, as we've seen the needs grow for family housing and, and different kinds of housing, we're trying to respond to that. Well, let me talk about the biggest news of late that impacts Fishers, and that's the approval of, of a $2 million funding package or some loans and, and some actual direct funding uh, for the Cumberland Cottage development. That's going to be one what is now vacant property right along Cumberland Road, just south of 141st Street. So uh, talk about that development and what that funding announcement means to this project. Sure. We're very excited about Cumberland Cottages. Um, we Hand owns eight affordable um, rental communities in both Hamilton and Boone counties. This will be our first in Fishers. Um, it's a little under two-acre site, and what we plan to do is to build 11 rental cottages on the site, um, we're still kind of finalizing the details. Our original plan was for them to be detached cottages, so sort of small single-family homes essentially um, oriented around shared green space. So instead of their front doors facing Cumberland Road and 141st Street, they would face a kind of common area of shared green space and each other. So kind of building a community um, right from the start, which we're excited about. Um, of the 11 units, six of them at this point will be reserved for folks who earn no more than 60% of area median income. So these are 
um, the service workers, you know, early career professionals, new graduates, you know, folks who are sort of in that stage of life where they really can't afford $2,000 a month in rent. Um, five of the units will be market rate, although we're exploring some possibilities for, for kind of sub renting those units to folks who would qualify for affordable rents and then sort of supplementing what they can pay versus what the the actual rent is. So we're hoping we can get more than six of them affordable. But at this point, um, the funding provides for us to to make six of them available to low-income residents. It's interesting. Now, when you talk about the 60% of the area income, what's the range we're talking about in Fishers, or is that hard to determine right now? It's um, it's not. It's a, it's a, a statistic that the Department of Housing and Urban Development puts out each year. And it's one of those that I should have in front of me, um, but don't. But oh, okay. generally, it's based on household size. So sure. I think for a single person, it's somewhere around $32,000 a year. For a family of four, I want to say it's in the high 60s, low 70s. I was just getting a feel yeah. for it. I'm, I'm not looking for exact yes, numbers, yes. but that's just so people listening can have some idea what income levels that that, that we're looking at. Uh, I want to say this. Oh, I want to ask one question about that. I know one of the big uh, conversations at the city council had to do with the garages. Yes. Will they be carports? Will they be uh, enclosed garages? Do we know yet? So we don't know for sure. Um, our funding application did not reflect garages. Um, when we when we apply for funding from the state, which is who awarded us a $1.5 million grant and then a $500,000 loan, which will cover about two-thirds of the expense of the project. Um, we, we propose a very specific project on a specific location, and we have to estimate the construction cost. When we got to the point, and then we have to make all the math work, right? So this is what the rent's going to be. This is what our, other, what our expenses will be, including paying back our loan and our you know, management fees and things like that. And, and you know, it has to, quote-unquote, pencil out. Um, when we looked at our construction cost estimates, they were about $800,000 higher than what we had anticipated based on pr- previous projects. You may have heard of you know, an increase in construction materials costs recently. Lumber at one point was something like 300, 400% higher than normal lumber prices. So um, we got a little bit of sticker shock at the um, construction cost estimates. That's when we started looking at, you know, how can we reduce the costs of, of the development? So garages um, sort of came off the table at that point. We, we were looking at this point at attaching some of the homes, some of the units in the development, so they would be more like doubles than um, individual single-family homes, which just reduces a little bit of the construction cost. But we're still seeking additional funding. So if we're able to, to get the funding to add garages and to re-detach, if you will, if that's a word, uh, the homes, we absolutely want to do that. And these are all rental units, correct? Yes. And what uh, I found interesting in the renderings, and, and you mentioned this earlier, but let's let's just accentuate this. These are all individual units. These are not multi-family units. They will they were they are just that cottages. Each individual family will have their own cottage. Right, unless we end up having to do doubles. But it, well, but even then, it's it's not an apartment building vibe. It's very much more of a of a tiny home village or a, and, and tiny home is even overstating it because the, the units are somewhere between 12 and 1400 square feet. So certainly not in the, the under a thousand square foot tiny territory, but also not, you know, the 3000 square foot homes that we're used to seeing built 
in Hamilton County. I'm, I'm hoping the lumber costs go down by the time you have to buy it. I understand it is starting to come down now, but it was a temporary shortage based on logistics and, and yeah. uh, COVID issues and that kind of thing. So let's hope you uh, you don't have to pay that 300 400 Fingers crossed for sure, but there's also a labor shortage. So That's another part of it. Yes, correct. Uh, I want to ask about this because you and I have uh, both been reporters, and when you go cover a city council meeting in almost every case with very few exceptions you almost know how a vote's going to go you had a vote before the city council and it really was a cliffhanger it sure was uh as you know how should i put this uh when when we sat down and 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 it was a virtual meeting if i recall correctly Mm -hmm. because we were all listening on our watching our there was a snowstorm it wasn't even a covid it was a snowstorm that's right i forgot about that it was back in winter time you don't think about that in september (laughs) you have a nice sunny day but what i remember is each council member went down how they plan to vote and why and of eight of the nine council members had weighed in four were four four were against and it all came down to David George. Now, for those who don't know, David George is the longest-serving council member, going back to the town council days. If you're looking for institutional memory, David George is the man you want to talk to. Absolutely. And uh, he he's an engineer by trade. And uh, I don't know how you have seen this, and I've worked around a lot of engineers at different, different times during my career, and they do have – a different way of looking at things. And I don't say that in a bad way at all. They, they actually give you another perspective Absolutely. sometimes. What David George did was he went out, I think the day before the vote, and, and drove around and looked at some of the hand property, some as long as 10 years old. And he camped and said, you know, I, these hand properties look very good. They look to be in very good shape 10 years later. They're credits to their neighborhood. And he gave a number of other reasons, but I think that was a major reason he voted yes. He was the deciding vote in in that uh, council meeting to allow you to go ahead with Cumberland Cottages. What was it like for you to sit at home at your computer watching all this? It was nerve-wracking, to say the least. Um, Yeah, we, we, you know, they say never ask a question if you don't know the answer. So there were some nerves going into that meeting because we legitimately didn't know. We certainly had had reached out to all of the city council members to try to help them understand the project and the implications of the project um, and answer any questions and address any concerns that they had. And, and you know, I had speak, spoken with um, David, you know, that previous week, I think, and, um, you know, had no idea which way he was leaning. I, you know, I, I certainly heard from some members who were definitely going to vote yes and some who were definitely going to vote no. But there were a couple that I, I really had no idea how way th- how the vote would go. So very grateful for, for his decision in the end. Let's just uh, say, just listening to you on the mic, I could tell you were happy. Okay? Yes. <laughs> and it, <laughs> very was, much it, was, so. it was a big, it was a big vote for, for your organization. And, uh, you know, I, I live literally, my, my uh, housing development lives adjacent to that Cumberland Cottages. And my neighbors have a variety of views on that. But, you know, I did... Uh, write a commentary in favor of it, and, you know, none of my neighbors have ever talked to me about it. So <laughs> well, that's probably good. Perhaps that's a good thing. I actually went to one of your neighborhood association meetings this mm-hmm. summer, and um, they asked me to come out and sort of answer some questions, and I hope it made them a little more comfortable with what we're planning. Yeah, I couldn't think of any better way to use that vacant land than for that project, so I'm really glad to see it's moving forward. Thank you. Um, we're in a budget process time of year, 
And uh, in getting a briefing from uh, the Fisher City government, the mayor, the city plans on hiring three new police officers in the next budget year for, for 2022. They're going to add eight firefighters because a new fire station comes online in the northeastern part of the city. And there's going to be more city staff added, and there will be, you know, the usual turnover, people coming in and out. Uh, and when I saw all that, one of the first things that came to my mind is a meeting that I attended that your organization did a while back, where you discussed this issue of people who are serving a particular community being able to afford to live in that community. And I wonder how many of these new civil servants and fishers with the current housing market will be able to live in the community they serve. I think that's a question we all need to ask ourselves as we look at the importance of housing policy. What, what are your views on that? There are definitely segments of our population, folks who, who work in Hamilton County and who serve us either through um, public safety roles or, or many other roles, teachers, um, you know, healthcare workers, home healthcare workers, you know, the folks who are taking care of our parents and grandparents, you know, who make $12 an hour. Those folks simply cannot afford to live in Hamilton County at any reasonable, you know, any any rent in Hamilton County is not reasonable when compared to what their income is. The, the unfortunate reality is many of us choose to live in Hamilton County even though we really can't afford it. And that's one of the reasons Hamilton County, you know, which is one of the most affluent counties on the whole in the state, we also have more than 40 food banks. Um, there, there are definitely choices being made by people who live in Hamilton County who are prioritizing being here over over some other things that they could spend money on. And that leads me into a question I'd already planned uh, to ask, so let me explore that a little more. When I moved here in 1991, one thing I found talking to neighbors and other people in the community, and again, Fishers had less than 10,000 people living. It was a little almost You're practically a native. Pra well, pr practically. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of people who I go to, I talked to George and Jennifer Kale, they got me beat. And there's some other people <laughs> who, have, who have people have lived there for much longer. But yeah, I was there when it was really just kind of an overgrown farm town mm -hmm. with some housing uh, subdivisions. I lived in Sunblessed, one of the first mm -hmm. uh, subdivisions uh, that were, that was built in Fishers. And, uh, what I found by just talking to neighbors and other people is that exactly what you just said. There were a lot of people who just wanted to live in Fishers. Maybe it's because of the schools. Maybe it's for other reasons. Mm -hmm. They wanted to say that they were living in Fishers. And what I found is almost all those people had leveraged themselves, borrowed so heavily, that one adverse economic thing happening to them, loss of a job, something else that would be negative to them, and you could list a number mm -hmm. of things, could put them out of their home. Absolutely. And uh, I, don't, I think that's an aspect of living in Hamilton County, and I'm sure Fishers is not alone. There are other places, especially in southern Hamilton County and Noblesville, where that occurs. So, so um, I guess, how would you advise people to make these decisions about where you should live and, and, and how you should make sure you know you can afford the home that you have. Well, I mean, the standard, um, the national standard for a long time has been um, if your housing costs are no more than 30% of your income, that's quote-unquote affordable. The reality is uh, many of us pay more than 30% of our, of our income on housing because we make that choice. You know, I will 
spend less money on X, Y, or Z in order to live in, in the community of my choice. And, and we're privileged to be able to make that choice. You know, there are certainly others who can't. And, and there are certainly others who probably shouldn't. You know, who, who when you're paying 40% of your income, that's one thing. If you're paying 50, 80% of your income to live in Hamilton County, I mean, that you're really, really in jeopardy. And I think that's one of the things we, that the COVID pandemic made clear is just how many of our friends and neighbors really are living one, you know, bad, like you said, you know, one unfortunate incident away from losing their homes, whether it's, you know, mortgage foreclosure or eviction. I mean, that's one way that a lot of people, you know, get to Hamilton County and, and maybe aspire to be homeowners at some point, but, you know, rents are a little bit more affordable or you don't have to save for the down payment. So, you you know, you can get in a, in a rental situation and, you know, evictions are going to start happening. The The moratorium is over. And um, that's something we saw during COVID is there are folks who, you know, having their workplace shut down during the, the shelter in place order or having their shifts cut back or, you know, having additional medical expenses really put them in a situation where they just couldn't make it work and didn't know where to go. And I want, to add, I want to ask about the eviction moratorium in a moment. Mm-hmm. But beforehand, I, I want to point something out because you deal with Hamilton County and even some areas adjacent to Hamilton County in your projects. Hamilton County uh, is really two different places. Southern Hamilton County and Noblesville, most of Noblesville, is, I would say, is in one classification. That would be a generally wealthy suburb, generally. But you get into the rural areas of northern Hamilton County, places like Cicero and Atlanta, even some extent Sheridan, uh, housing costs and 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 uh, and just the style of living is much different, is it not? Definitely, it's much more rural. You know, closer to sort of our you know farming uh, origins. It's it's there's still a lot of farmland uh, up north of State Road 32, in um, a very different vibe. You know, kind of much more of a small town um, vibe. Yeah, I remember years ago you uh, worked for the Indianapolis Business Journal, did a long front page piece on Sheridan, and it continues to grow. It does. I keep not, waiting for that it's, it's <laughs> explosion. Not, but. <laughs> not as fast as you thought, but uh, they are they are beginning to see that that come their way. Now you mentioned the more the eviction moratorium has received a lot of press coverage and media coverage, and. I have always, in talking to people in Hamilton County, received a different reaction to that than I expected. If I talk to Youth Assistance Program, or I talk to the Township Trustees, and I think I've talked to you about this on occasion, when it comes to an eviction moratorium, you say, well, it's kind of a double-edged sword, because all eviction moratoriums end at some point. And if you've been relying on that to stay in your home, and you haven't planned ahead, you haven't worked on on making sure you are able to pay the rent and get the back rent paid for example when the moratorium comes off that is a problem are you seeing anything here in in your area of hamilton county and the adjacent areas how how has the eviction moratorium being lifted impacted families here i haven't the the moratorium was just lifted i think it's almost two weeks ago um and i haven't seen an immediate impact from that um but I will say, just since March, when Hamilton County began administering its own emergency rental assistance program, they've handled about 1,700 cases. 
and approved more than $4 million in assistance to Hamilton County families. So that tells me there certainly is need. Um, Hand was fortunate enough last year to get a grant from the United Way and some of its funding partners um, through what was called the Central Indiana COVID Economic Relief Fund um, to provide some emergency rental and utility assistance as well. And what and we expected kind of an immediate, you know, as soon as we announced this money was available, we expected an immediate rush of applications. And what we found was no one really applied until that first eviction moratorium was getting ready to expire. And then they thought, oh, I better get my my acting gear and get things taken care of. And that's unfortunate because I think that's the point of this moratorium isn't to delay the inevitable. It's to give folks, especially during a, a global health pandemic, um, a, a global health crisis, it's to give folks time so that, you know, they can work on getting caught up, work on arrangements with their landlords or their mortgage lenders or whatever, so that they don't end up losing their housing because of, of something like this. But far too many people, I think, sort of weren't as on top of that as they could have been. And we need to remember some landlords are big corporations. Some are just individual people who are doing, maybe have some rental properties on the side. They have to pay their bills too. And they've had had some government help, but that didn't last forever either. So there's a a lot of aspects to this. Uh, So at least as of this point, you haven't seen mass evictions. I haven't seen mass evictions, but they're coming. We know that. We know from the twenty. Uh, the 2008 housing crisis that you alluded to earlier, the impact of that, tr- township trustees were seeing that well into 2011. Hmm. So we'll, we'll see it for years. There's been a lot uh, written about and, and talked about in terms of unspent federal COVID funds. I know Fisher's got far less than they thought, but there was a formula, they, there's a, there was a little factor in that formula that came later that and and that was really a way to, to give less to the more affluent suburbs. And I think that's the reason it was there, whether you agree with it or not. So the final, I think, number was around $9 million. They thought it was going to be a lot more than that. But as I understand it, Hamilton County has verified $65 million, I believe, if I remember correctly, that uh, they've, they're going to make a decision on how to handle that money. And I know that the county commissioners and the county council have been working with all the organizations in the county, what what's your understanding of where that's at? Well, I actually go to all of those meetings because it, uh, it's an old habit from my days as a journalist. So, um, yeah. So we're talking about American Rescue Plan Act funds, um, and Cam- Hamilton County has been notified that they will receive about sixty five million dollars. They've only received half of it, and so they're um, given the conservative nature of our elected officials. Um, when it comes to spending money, have decided they're only going to plan how to spend the part that they've already received. So they're only making allocations for the first $32, $34 million. Um, and they've allocated some of that. They immediately um, they were authorized to give uh, bonuses to county employees um, who worked during the pandemic, and that was the first thing they did. Um at the meeting last week, they allocated some funding um, for uh, someone to help with the grant reporting for the ARPA money. You know, as you might imagine, with federal uh, money like this, there's a lot of red tape, and so they're going to bring in some professionals to help do, you know, keep track of the spending and grant reporting and things like that. So nothing super sexy yet, um, but they they are starting to think about you know some some transformational investments that the county could make that will 
kind of position Hamilton County to succeed in the future. Um, they are making um, grants available to businesses and nonprofits that have been negatively impacted by the p- pandemic. And so there's a little bit of trying to figure out what exactly that means. Many of us, um, Hand, for example, like I mentioned, we administered a large grant last year. That grant for rental assistance was more than our normal annual operating budget. So if you look at our financial results from last year, it looks like we had a great year. Um, Unfortunately, very little of that money stayed here. You know, that was money that we were just passing through from the United Way and its other funders to folks who needed it. So that didn't, you know, help us. Did it hurt us? Not necessarily. Um, But just as an example. So the county is going to be accepting applications from businesses and nonprofits through the end of September. And then at their October or November meeting, they'll sit down and go through those applications and figure out of this initial 32 million, how much they'll give to businesses and nonprofits. And then the balance I think will be spent on projects within the county, um, drainage, um, some infrastructure, broadband. There are some categories that they're allowed to spend money on. And I'm hoping with the next uh, installment of money next year, we can maybe even be a little more transformational and a little more uh, visionary about how we might be able to help our future. So you're reminding the county commissioners and <clears throat> county council members are still around. So well, in, in terms of being able to use that money, should they choose to? I, I'm to like a bad some. penny. I'm happy to. <laughs> I just had a conversation with someone from a, a funding organization and I said if you ever need help getting rid of your money I'm here for you you're, you're always happy to be of help in that regard absolutely um, I do have one question because and we've sort of touched on this uh, tell me more an organization such as yours with all the differing communities we've talked about in Hamilton County and to some extent the surrounding areas how do you go about measuring the housing needs how does that how do you do that? It's hard. Um, we we don't try to make that kind of assessment ourselves. Um, we hire professionals for that. So we're actually um, I'm hand as part of a broader um, countywide group of of organizations that's gotten together to talk about a countywide housing strategy. You know, each community sort of has their individual comprehensive plan and, and land use plan, and has sort of at least to some extent sketched out initial thoughts, at least, about or guidelines for what kind of housing, you know, they envision needing and where it might go and that sort of thing. And while the county has a comprehensive plan, it's really only covers the portions of the county that aren't part of another municipality, right? So there isn't a a sort of across the entire county, including all the municipalities, a plan. And, and this group is working to put one together. So the first step in doing that is to try to identify, you know, what do we have and what do we need? And so we're, we have a, a request for proposals out. We hope to make a decision this week on a consultant who is going to do a very comprehensive assessment of that, looking at, you know, building permit data and, and um, new home sales and new home construction and what's being built versus, you know, who's living here and working here and what those needs are. Um, you know, we're very proud in Hamilton County and we, we um, sort of tout the job creation efforts that, that are happening up here. Um, you know, it's a little bit different than the old days when it was purely residential growth. You know, we're, we embrace business a lot more up here, which makes sense because, you know, thriving communities really need a mixture of, of uses. But the reality is for every one 
great paying job that's created. There are five other jobs that are creative, and three of those don't make enough to live in Hamilton County. So as we continue to add jobs, we need to continue to add housing across all levels. And that's what we hope the housing needs assessment will determine by looking at trends and patterns and um, and history. Of course, I would expect that this commercial development will continue because the property tax caps that came into play during the Mitch Daniels administration, when he was governor, um, put a formula together where if you only have housing, you really have trouble paying for your basic municipal services. And if you have commercial development, uh, and as, as it's yes. been explained to me, that's the way you uh, actually grow as a community. Absolutely. Well, I want to ask, change the subject a little bit because you have described yourself as a re- recovering journalist. <laughs> that I am. I have obviously not recovered, and I'm not <laughs> close because I'm sitting here doing this, and I still write my, my volunteer blog. But I do want to ask you about something that just happened because you, for many years, uh, worked for the Indianapolis Business Journal. I did. And you know, that's where you and I got to know each other, mm-hmm. going to be covering a lot of the same events. But there's been a very interesting development. Uh, Nate Feltman was brought in as a partner. Mickey Marr, who had bought the the company from a a national group many years ago, Uh, I think 86 was the year he did it. Uh, I guess his family's not interested in that that, that endeavor. And uh, so he brought in a partner, Nate Feltman, the third partner that's been around for years. But... um, I think he is definitely taking the companies a different in a different direction by acquiring Inside Indiana Business, which is a an hour long TV show every week on commercial and public broadcasting throughout the state. They have a radio program that that's distributed around the state, and they have a heavy web and and, and uh, social media presence. Of course, Indiana, Indianapolis Business Journal has been a weekly print edition, but they've become more involved uh, in online activity, newsletters. They uh, produce podcasts now, but I think each organization is trying to increase their reach. I'm just wondering. I, you know, I, I think this is a good thing for journalism, particularly because it keeps those uh, operations local when they could have been acquired by a national group, which IBG was at one time. Uh, yet I had a, a former journalist who lives in Fishers uh, telling me he thinks it's a bad thing. We should have more different media. I said, well, normally that might be a good idea. I think in this case, it's it's better for all of us. I'm really curious how you view all this. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I was surprised. I I, I don't want to give any uh, the impression that I'm still sort of in the loop or part of any you know have any additional insight to the deal because I learned about it just like everybody else when when I got a, an alert on my phone. Um, I think from inside Indiana business, actually. So um, I was surprised, but, you know, after reading the story, it completely makes sense. I mean, you know, newspapers, as you alluded to, with blogs and newslet- and emails and, and podcasts, you know, newspapers aren't just newspapers anymore. In fact, they're increasingly less and less newspapers and more and more, you know, other, um, other formats. So, you know, I think it's a good thing. It's a, it's a way to get those stories that were only being told, you know, in print or in the, in the digital version of that print product to a broader audience. You know, certainly there's a generation of folks who would never in a million years read a news story that, don't have a problem, you know, watching a video or 
um, you know, getting on TikTok and learning. I have a friend, uh, a little 12-year-old friend, and she was telling me all the gossip. And I said, geez, do you have a subscription to People Magazine or something? And she looked at me like I was an alien. And she's like, no, I saw it on TikTok. I'm like, okay, you know. So I, I think, you know, my, you know, that kind of partnership makes absolute sense. IBJ has sort of experimented with trying to to get into video previously with partnerships with different TV stations. Um, and it kind of looked like newspaper people trying to <laughs> figure out TV. So I, I think, you know, Gary's operation certainly brings a professionalism to it. I think they do different kinds of journalism. I think IBJ is a lot more in-depth and, you know, they more traditional, you know, dig deep and follow the money and that sort of thing, whereas the Inside Indiana business operation seems more accessible. Yeah, I think Gary Dick, you know, on his TV show does the long-form interview, which IBJ can't really do. Right. He'll bring in Mayor Scott Fadness, John Wexler from, from uh, Launch Fishers. They even have an extra office there at the Launch Fishers office. But they, and they'll bring in people who, are, who know, have some involvement in Indiana business. And I think their reach throughout the state was appealing to IBJ, For which sure. is mostly been a central Indiana Operation, but uh, anyway, I just yeah. so you think it's probably a good thing. Oh, for I think news so, yeah. And I think a lot of thing, uh, one thing a lot of people don't realize is IBJ Media is more than just the Indianapolis Business Journal newspaper. Um, IBJ also owns the Indiana Lawyer, which is a statewide publication that focuses on the legal industry, as well as the Court and Commercial Record, which is kind of the newspaper of record with legal notices and that for Marion County. So this, I mean, the acquisition made complete sense just in terms of modernizing the news operation. Well, I want, I'm curious about this. Now that you're the executive director of HAND, you'd worked as a staff member before that. What's it like having been a journalist and now you're on the other side, you're, you're working in, a, in the nonprofit world dealing with the media? Um, does that make it easier for you or, or just how do you view that now that you're on the other side of the it's, fence? It's, it feels weird sometimes, I'll be honest. I've gotten, when we were um, going through the rezone for our Fisher's project, you know, getting calls from, my, you know, seeing my old phone number pop up on my phone um, with a reporter calling me was kind of surreal. But, you know, I think it, it helps just in the to the extent that, you know, I know how to take a complicated issue, which attainable housing certainly is and boil it down into something that people can relate to and and identify with even if they themselves may never need affordable housing at least i hope that's the case um so i know when i was a, a reporter the easy the less work i had to do to figure out why something was important the better because you know you're just so busy you have ideas coming at you all the time if if someone could give me a story idea that I could see instantly, okay, that's a story, and here's who I could talk to. And so I think from a pitching stories perspective or a, or a news release perspective, that gives me a little bit of an advantage. And I think it also helps in talking with reporters because I know what they want to know and what they don't want to know. Um, well, let me ask about this. You have a uh, staff here. You have a board of directors. Talk about the other people that work with HAND. Sure, yeah. We actually have a very small staff, um, small and mighty. Uh, just two of us full time. Um, I'm executive director, and so you know, kind of chief bottle washer. Um, I have a real estate development director who kind of takes the leads on our real estate projects in terms of 
um, preparing the application and going through all of the uh, various environmental reviews and all of the kind of technical aspects that go into any development, um, you know, putting together the financial planning for that, that sort of thing. And then um, I have a couple part-timers who really just kind of help on an as-needed basis. I have one who works on our tenant newsletters and gets those out to tenants for us and another who helps with special events. Um, the board of directors is everybody's boss. They're the, the governing body of the organization. Um, they meet every other month as a, as a full board, and then the executive team meets on the alternating months. Um, and they really, you know, they have a variety of experience both in um, attainable housing development and finance. Um, just, you know, we have some, we have a realtor, we have a, a small store owner, we, you know, there's, it's really um, a variety of background and experience, which really helps us kind of stay focused on what we need to be focused on. Um, we're, and the type of organization we are is called a community housing development organization. We're certified by the state. And so to get that designation, we commit to one-third of our board members either being low-income themselves, living in a low-income area, or being the elected representative of an organization that serves low-income individuals. And the idea there is that these folks who are making decisions about what HAND does and doesn't do understand the perspective of the folks that we're trying to help and are part of the decision-making process. Well, I tried to ask a number of questions here, but I don't pretend to know all the questions. Uh, if there's something you'd like to add before we wrap this up, this is your chance. I'll just do my shameless plug, if that's okay. We just wrapped up our um, our annual housing conference um, where we try to educate the community a little bit about the need for attainable housing. It was successful, I'm told. Um, I was there, but by the time it occurs, I'm just ready for it to be over. Yes, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm doing something, you don't know how it's going. You ask other people, okay, how did it go? I was too busy to exactly. figure it out. But it's good to hear it went well. Though. Yes, but our next event is November 13th. Um, our, our sort of signature fundraiser is an, is an unusual fundraiser we call Stay Home for Hand, where we sell tickets. And instead of dragging you out of your house to a hotel ballroom, we let you stay home and enjoy the very thing that we work to provide uh, less fortunate families. Because of the COVID pandemic this year, we are also offering a drag you out of your home option, um, our annual trivia night fundraiser, which we typically have in February. We were unable to have in February because of COVID. So we moved it to the same night as Stay Home for Hand. So if you're comfortable getting out, joining your friends for a nice game of team trivia and a cash bar and some, some food and a, a silent auction and a raffle, that'll be November 13th at the Embassy Suites in Noblesville. We'll... Registration should go up next week. And then same night, if you don't want to go out or you you know want to rest up for the busy holiday season, you can stay home and support Housing for All either way. Well, for fresh memory, I believe you started that stay-at-home fundraiser before COVID. I did. We were staying home long before it was required. <laughs> Andrea Davis, you are the executive director of HAND. You're a nonprofit, and I'm going to try to remember this, focused on attainable <laughs> housing. I'm going to try to remember that that new term that you're trying to use. But Andrea, thank you for carving out uh, some time for me today. I always have time for you, Larry. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. 
So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Music